0: Today, we are continuing our our One Another series. Uh, We have come down to the final two weeks of this series. Um, And if you remember, if you were here on week one, uh, we talked about loving one another. That was kind of the big umbrella under which all of these are going to fall. But I used an illustration that loving one another is kind of like climbing a mountain. It's it's fun at first. It's beautiful. uh, But then it gets really, really hard. And then we get to a point where perhaps we want to give up. But if we persevere through it, if we, if we push through the hard things, we arrive at what I call mile seven, which is when you're standing on the pinnacle of a mountain and you're looking out over uh, an ocean or over a valley or whatever it might be, and you see the benefits and the rewards of pushing through the hard. Well, I found an illustration that I want to use this week from another two guys who were climbing a mountain. Not these guys those aren't guys any Lord of the Rings fans in the room come on there's more you're just afraid I'm gonna call you a nerd but I'm I come on who likes Lord of the Rings all right so if you like Lord of the Rings you know Frodo and you know Samwise and you know that at the end of the return of the king Frodo is getting ready to destroy the ring in Mordor am I saying that right okay and they're climbing the mountain and as they are climbing the mountain, Frodo is, is getting more and more sick. He's getting more and more frail. He's getting more and more unable to accomplish the task to which he has been assigned. And Samwise, the great, incomparable Samwise Gamgee, who is like the ultimate friend, he's got Frodo in his arms, and the fires of Mordor are raging around them. And Frodo is ready to give up. And Sam says this. He says, come on, Mr. Frodo. I can't carry the ring for you, but I can carry you. And then he lifts Frodo and carries him up the mountain of Mordor. Today, we're going to be talking about what it looks like to encourage one another. To encourage one another. It's a little bit something like when you feel like you are being carried in the arms of another. Hopefully, we've experienced that with God, but we also need to experience it from time to time with each other. And so what we're gonna to do today is is we're gonna I'm gonna start off, I wanna show you the source of encouragement, which is God. We'll talk about that. Then I wanna give you two ways to become an encourager. Maybe this is something that comes naturally to you. Maybe you go, I struggle with being encouraging. I just have a more realistic perspective on life, or I'm more pessimistic and I have a hard time encouraging. I wanna give you two ways to become one. And then I'm gonna end with two challenges. These are going to be really practical things I'm going to ask you to do this week, and then I'm going to join you in doing in the coming week. 1943, a guy named Abraham Maslow, he was, a, he was a psychologist. He came up with this, and it's going to probably look familiar to a lot of us. This is called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, right? And the reason I bring this up to you is to say that uh, the way that the hierarchy of needs works, and this is just a theory, but is we need our physiological needs and safety needs met. That's first and foremost, right? This is one of the reasons when we do missions work around the world, if people are starving to death, we don't just hand them Bibles, right? Because people need to be kept alive. They need to be protected, kept safe. They need to be nourished. And then from there, we have opportunity to do the work of of spiritual and emotional things. And that's where kind of higher up on the the, um, hierarchy, we see that. Love, belonging, self-esteem, self-actualization. Now, this is not uh, a Bible thing necessarily, but this is simply a theory on how human beings thrive. Well, it turns out a few years ago, there was a lot of scrutiny around this, and people were saying, no, 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 this is a culturally biased uh, diagram. This just represents what's true for people in the West. And so the University of Illinois actually conducted a study. 2005 to 2010, they Worked with over 60,000 people in 123 different countries, and their conclusion was this it's basically right. Right? Like, it's not perfect, it's not everything, and there's nuances, but they found this, and, and I'm quoting Maslow was essentially right in that there are universal human needs regardless of cultural differences. Almost like we were all created by the same being. We shouldn't find that surprising. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, after God had created Adam and he had created the animals and the oceans and the mountains and he had given Adam everything he needed to have his physiological needs met, his safety needs met, and yet God says, Genesis two eighteen, he says, it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now let me ask you this. What in the world could Adam have been missing In a perfect world, in a perfect relationship with God, what he was missing was the encouragement, the companionship that comes from other people. And God said, that's not a good thing. Human beings cannot survive. We certainly cannot thrive without a sense of self-worth and belonging. And these come most naturally through the encouragement of other people. So what happens when a person fails to get the encouragement that they need in life or worse When somebody is constantly being battered by discouragement, this is what we see in our world today, and people are angry. I was meeting with uh, one of my teammates this week at Starbucks, and this guy just starts screaming in the parking lot, like he had come completely unglued, and he's cursing and he's and I'm like, I've got my back because of the way I was situated. I'm like, I don't want to have my back to this guy, right? Like. People are living just under weight, and it's getting worse. It seems like the, the news cycle and pandemic and all, it's just like, man, people are discouraged. What happens when people live in constant discouragement? When my oldest child, Addison, was little, uh, one of our first chores for her was to feed our dog, Lizzie, um, and she was has always been a, a very responsible kid, and so Um, At like 18 months old, her job was to get the little scooper and get the food out of the thing and then walk it over to the bowl and dump it in. And she would do this at 18 months, like flawlessly, every day, barely even have to remind her. And then one day, my 18-month-old daughter is walking toward the bowl and she spills all the food everywhere. And I said, Addie, what are you doing? And the lights in her eyes went out. And she never again fed our dog. <laughs> and it was heartbreaking. I, and I look back on that now, and I was like a young dad. It was my first kid. You make all your mistakes on the first one. Oldest children, we apologize. <laughs> but that simple discouragement, she said, not doing that again. Not, not going to go back and revisit that. Now, eight years later, she's pressuring me to get a dog again, um, which is another conversation discouragement we've all been there right we've all been there something that was spoken over us something that we had hoped would happen that didn't happen we became discouraged you're going to notice the root word that is shared between these two words encouragement and discouragement it's the word courage courage when we discourage someone we weaken their ability to face life's challenges and when we encourage someone we strengthen their ability to face life's challenges wouldn't you love to have somebody whose just sole purpose in life was to encourage you? Right? Well, What, what if you became that for other people? What, what if you made it your mission in life, man? I want to encourage people. Like when I'm around people, I, I want them to have more strength to face life's challenges. I want them to be more joyful, more filled, more alive. Jesus recognized with his disciples that in the kind of days leading up to his departure, they were going to face some discouragement. These disciples who had walked with Jesus for three years were going to suddenly go, our champion, our cheerleader, our hero is gone now. What do we do? And so Jesus tells them this in John 15, verse 26. He says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. Now, what Jesus has just uh, done is for the first time, he's introduced the disciples to the concept of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say Holy Spirit, but as he's talking, he says he's the helper. Did you notice this is the same word in English, at least from Genesis chapter 2? A helper suitable. Jesus says, guys, you're going to need a helper suitable, but not necessarily in physical form. I'm going to give my Holy Spirit to be a helper suitable for you. An encourager, a source of comfort. Uh, the word in Greek is paraclete. A paraclete, someone who will walk with you, who will be in you and for you. In fact, Paul uses that same root word, paraclete, in Romans chapter 15, verse 5 and 6. He says, may the God of endurance and encouragement. Give you a spirit of unity among yourselves. And what Paul is recognizing is that God is the source of encouragement, and the Spirit of God in us is a living, breathing source of encouragement for us at all times. Now, I hope that you have experienced this at times. If, you've, uh, if you're a believer, if you walk with Jesus, I, I would hope that you've experienced this. This is when you're, when you're reading Scripture. And there is a promise or a word of truth that just jumps off the page to you. And maybe you've read it a number of times, but for some reason you're reading it and the Holy Spirit just goes, I'm going to apply this to your heart. I'm going to encourage you with this truth. Or or maybe it's like we just had this time of worship or maybe in in a quiet time of prayer and you have a tangible sense of God being with you. That's the Holy Spirit comforting, encouraging your heart. Or maybe uh, a sunrise. I love to watch a sunrise. and, And when the sun comes up, it reminds me that God's mercies are new every morning. The Holy Spirit, the paraclete, applies God's comfort to my heart in those ways. All of these and many more are examples of the ministry of the Holy Spirit to encourage us. And when we encourage each other, when we encourage other people, what we're doing is cooperating with the Spirit of God. Like, that's what he's doing. That's what he's attempting to do at all times, encourage our hearts. And when we encourage one another, we're cooperating with the Spirit of God to work in the person's life. In fact, I believe it's the primary way that the Holy Spirit encourages us. See, those other things are beautiful, and they're necessary, and they're real, but if you rely solely on the encouragement that comes from God and you don't think you need encouragement from other people, you're missing You're missing what God has for you. So two ways that we can become encouragers, two ways that we can cooperate with the Holy Spirit of God in encouraging other believers. First is this, through the ministry of presence. The ministry of presence is when we uh, become available to be with other people without the compulsion to do for them or to say to them. Okay, The ministry of presence, just showing up being there, coming alongside. A great 20th century theologian uh, and priest, Henry Nouwen, said, more and more the desire grows in me simply to walk around, greet people, enter their homes, sit on their doorsteps, play ball, throw water, and be known as someone who wants to live with them. It is a privilege to have the time to practice this simple ministry of presence. Henry Nouwen was world-renowned. He was the author of dozens of books, and he came to a place in life of going... Man, I miss the times when I was able to just show up. Not, not, not be the speaker, the writer, the theologian, but just exercise the ministry of presence in the life of another believer. See, I think this is what Jesus was getting at in the old story of Mary and Martha, the sisters. You remember the story? Martha is busily, you know, getting everything ready and making the meal and sweeping the floors and doing the deeds. And Mary is just sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening, relating. And Martha says, Jesus, tell my sister to help. She's not doing what she needs to do. And Jesus says, you know, you've missed the point, Martha. She has chosen what is better. The ministry of presence to simply be with another person. See, I I am in vocational ministry, which means that I, I, my career, my job is ministry. And one of the things I've identified now almost 20 years in is that there is a lot of presence of ministry in my life. A lot of presence of ministry. I meet with people. I prepare messages. I, 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 I meet with our teams. We, we set things on the calendar and we organize around vision and goals. And we, we, there's a lot of presence of ministry in my life. And I wonder how much there is the ministry of presence. And you know what's interesting? All of that is good, and all of that is necessary, and I believe all of that is opportunity for the people of God to move in their relationship. That's why we do these things. But the most profound times of ministry I've had were when I simply showed up when a person was in need. And I can't tell you the number of times I've sat there going, Lord, give me the words to say, and the response is, okay, uh, nothing, (laughs) nothing. Like, the the thing to say is nothing. Just be there. Just be with these people. This is exactly what Job's friends did at first. (laughs) You remember Job, right? The guy who everything in his life fell apart. His wife is like, you've lost everything, just curse God and die. That's called the ministry of discouragement, right? (laughs) Right? Job hangs on, and then Job 2, verses 11 to 13. Listen to what is said of Job's friends. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came, each from his own place, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. And they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and to comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground 7 days 7 nights and no one spoke a word to him for they saw that his suffering was great now we beat these guys up because the rest of the book of job is them being idiots okay but how many of us have ever done that i mean i might, i would have made it like 7 minutes 7 days and nights they sat and they said nothing why precisely because they realized His suffering was great. And he said, we're not going to give you a lot of words right now. We're just going to sit and lament and get in the dirt with you. The ministry of presence. When my mom passed away when I was 18, she was 47, um, there were people who showed up that I will never forget. Um, Some of those were friends close by. My friend Jeremy, who's a worship leader now in Indiana, uh, was the first person to come, Got on his bike and rode to my house and showed up Monday morning on May 1st, 2000, and was there. And Chris, another worship leader in Ohio, he, he joined as well. And then there were two guys, uh, another Jeremy, and yeah, we had a lot of Jeremy's and Chris's going on, but another Jeremy and a guy named Ed who actually flew in from out of state within days of my mom's passing. Um, didn't even know her very well, but were close with me and my brothers, and they came. And here's the thing. I don't remember a single conversation that we had. I don't remember a single word that was said. I just think back on that time, 21 years ago, and I remember that they were there. So that's how the ministry of presence works. It also works in much simpler ways. Like this isn't just during tragedy. That's what we see with like Job and, and the story. That it, yes, it works there, but it also works in much simpler ways. Look at Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. L- leave this up for just a second. This is what happens to me on Sunday mornings, <laughs> and you are the reason. William pointed out this morning, I was just like, had a hard time getting my day going. He could kind of tell, like it was just kind of, ugh. And... By about 9.30, 9.32, I'm like, I'm ready to go. And he pulls me aside. He's like, you look much better. <laughs> he said, I think, I think it's the people. I said, it's absolutely the people. When I see you guys show up, and I see the faces, and, and the kids come, and they fist bump me, or high five, and man, we're together. And then at like 9.35, when I got in the room, and we're worshiping together, and our voices are raised, I'm like, okay, now I'm ready. Amen. Now I'm ready. It's simply the ministry of presence. I haven't had conversations with most of you, but you're here, you're present, and your presence energizes me, it encourages me. In fact, I think that's some of what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that that we encourage one another by meeting together, that simply the act of showing up can be an encouragement to one another. Here's a question for us to wrestle with. Where is your absence potentially being felt by others? Maybe it's your physical absence. You're you're avoiding something with a friend or family member, and so you've just pulled back. Guess what? You may not know it, but that's discouraging. Or maybe it's spiritual or emotional absence. A lot of us are great about physically being there, but we're completely checked out. That can happen in our home. It can happen with our children, with our spouses. So the next question is, where could your presence be a source of encouragement to others? Man, where, where is it that I need to step in? And it may not be with some big agenda or, or words, but, but where do I need to step in and be an encouragement in the life of someone else? Where can my presence make a difference? So first, the ministry of presence, and second is this, the ministry of words. And I put them in that order for a reason. I think we're always geared toward the words first, right? So the ministry of presence first, followed by the ministry of words um, I want to ask for a show of hands in just a second. I want to give you a chance to think about the question. But how many of you can remember a specific word or words that were spoken over you that discouraged or even wounded you? Very. I'm asking specific, like something in your mind, a parent, a teacher, a sibling, you go, yep, I remember that. It was years ago. It's still there. Okay. How many of you can remember something like that? Go ahead and raise your hand. Okay. That's most of us in the room, myself included. What, what is it about the power of words that they can live so much longer after they're spoken? And for some of us, we're walking around wounded, crippled, spiritually hindered because of discouraging words that were spoken over us maybe years ago, maybe as young children. And so Paul says this in Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. That it may give grace to those who hear. No corrupting talk. I remember, I don't remember what translation, but one of the translations it leads you to believe that Paul is talking about cussing. And that's not what he's talking about. I had a guy ask me that this week. He's like, I just want to make sure. I'm like, well, I'm not sure why you're asking me. But nonetheless, he says, this is about cussing. He says, it's not about cussing. It's not about cussing. It's corrupting talk. What in the world is Paul driving at with this idea of corrupting? Talk. Well, every other use of that word in the original, not the the way we've translated, but in the original, every other use in the New Testament is referring to one of two things, fruit or fish. You know what happens when fruit goes bad? Do you know what happens when fish goes bad? Corrupting, eroding, corrosive, rotten. Fleas, maggots. I mean, this is, this is the idea. He says, don't let that kind of talk come out of your mouths. It's much more than curse words. He's saying, don't use language that corrodes. Don't speak death into the lives of people. Don't use trivial, meaningless words that add nothing of benefit, no flavoring. Rotten. He says, don't do it. We know in English there's an old phrase that we probably learned as children, most of us. It says, "Sticks and stones may break my bones, but that's right." But it's not right, <laughs> right? It's just, it's just not true. Sticks and stones break my bones. Words will never hurt me. This is something that children created as a defense mechanism because they're so wounded by the words. They go, "No, no, you can't hurt me with words," and inside they know they've been wounded. And the challenge is that wounded bodies actually heal heal more quickly than wounded spirits. Right? A punch in the face, like you'll recover from that. But the words that puncture, the words that hurt, the words that wound, some people never do. And so there's another expression that you may not have heard. Hurt people hurt people. I've come to a place in life, I talk like I'm a sage, I'm almost 40 years old, you know. I've come to a place in life where I, when somebody hurts me, it doesn't hurt me as much for this simple reason. It's not that I'm Superman or impenetrable, but I know they're hurt. I'm like, it's not me. If you're, if you're hurting me, there's something going on there. There's a, I, I've been able to tap into some compassion because I understand that hurt people hurt people, and the hurt most often has come through the form of words most often through the form of words. And it's why James takes an entire chapter, Jesus' brother, James, in James chapter 3, he says, okay, we're going to talk about words. We're going to talk, this is what he says, James 3, 2 to 6. He says, we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. You go, James, do you really think that the tongue is just like, just totally beyond like redemption? It's just nothing but evil. Well, there's a clue in the way that James is talking about this, because what he uses is three illustrations of things that all have a very positive use, positive function. If you're going to be in a ship, you're, you're going to need a rudder to control it, or it's going to get dashed onto the rocks. If you've got a horse, you're going to need the bridle or the horse is going to go someplace. You don't mean for it to go and take you into dangerous territory, so the bridle controls the horse. And what could be more beneficial than fire? Think especially first century. Fire was heat. Fire was light. Fire was cleansing. But what happens when it gets out of control? It destroys And James is saying in all of these illustrations, if you're not careful and you don't control your tongue, it's going to cause you to get crashed into the rocks. It's going to burn down the forest. It's going to bring destructive things into the world. But you've got to learn to control what you say, the words that you use. In the same way that our words have great power to do harm under the control of the Holy Spirit, they have great power to bring healing I want to speak for a moment to those of you who have been wounded by the words of someone else, especially if it was somebody that you loved, respected, esteemed, somebody that was supposed to protect you, but instead they hurt you. I want to allow the words of Scripture, the words of God through the Bible, to replace those words in your head. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you put your trust in Jesus for salvation, here's what is true of you. Romans 8, 37 through 39. In all things, we're more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, the present, the future, any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. First John 3, 1 John 3.1, see what great love the Father has lavished on you, that you should be called a child of God. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special Possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Psalm 27 10 Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. For some of you, the, the tape playing in your head is You're not enough. You're a failure. Nobody cares about you. I wish you'd never been born. And I want you to hear the words of God over you. You are loved by God, created by God in his image. Jesus died for you to redeem you. He's put his Holy Spirit in you, the great treasured possession that we hold in jars of clay. You are loved by God. You are his. See, my hope for us as a church is that through the word of God, the encouragement of the Spirit, and the ministry of other believers, each other, that we would all be in a process of healing. Because here's what else I believe. Not only to hurt people, hurt people, but I believe this. Healed people, heal people. I might even say healing people, heal people. Because you don't have to get all the way there. When you begin a process of healing your spirit or allowing God to heal your spirit, you can become a healer. What some have called maybe a wounded healer. Remember earlier, we talked about this idea of corrupting talk, and I gave you the illustration of fruit, the way that fruit corrodes. We've got some bananas at the house, um, and I think somebody was going to make banana bread. I, I like to do that from time to time. But by the time there's flies around it, I'm like, I'm just throwing it away, just going in the trash, right? It's corrupted. It's, it's, it's no good anymore. Well, what, what if we actually took that idea of fruit and we used the same concept to, to evaluate the words that we choose, the words that we use? Paul, in Galatians 5, and 23, this is what we call the fruit of the Spirit. This is what he says. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there's no law. What if before you spoke, you ran it through the fruit test? Is this loving? Is it joyful? Does it promote peace? That's a big one. Is it patient? Maybe it needs to be said, but maybe not right now? Is it kind? Is it, is it all, maybe you go to 1 Corinthians 13. What is love? Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. Am I using my words? We use so many words to self-promote. What if we flipped it and use words to promote others, promote the will of God in their lives? See, I think this is especially important, and I want to make a quick aside before we close. I want to make a quick aside to those of us that are raising children, especially young children, um, you have no idea how important and powerful these things are. And I don't want to lay a guilt trip on you. There's a lot of words I wish I could pull back in that I've spoken to my kids. Pastor David at our John Young campus says, there are three things every child needs to hear. I love you, I'm proud of you, and I'm sorry. Do your children regularly hear you say that? I love you. I'm proud of you. And even on occasion, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I saw a meme on Facebook this week that that one of our members shared. It said, when you keep criticizing your kids, they don't stop loving you. They stop loving themselves. It's like, right? Like we've got to manage and steward these young souls that God has given us just for a time. You do realize, right, that it's just for a time. There's going to come a day where they are your eternal equal standing in heaven. Hopefully, we pray, worshiping God for all of eternity That's our hope, right? Like, we we don't want to always be, like, the rule keepers. Like, we got to do that for a time. But I've already started to prepare my kids. I say, hey, one day we're going to be best friends. Like, right now I'm your dad. you got to do it. But but one day we're preparing for something better. We're preparing for something really cool. And I don't want them having a narrative in their head of all the things dad said that hurt them, that wounded them. There's going to be some. But I pray to God they're minimal. And I pray that the encouragement just overwhelms Anything discouraging that could come, we cannot all leave our children material wealth. But I want to encourage you that you can leave them something much, much better. When you encourage your child, or maybe teachers, preschool workers, when you encourage a child, kids, volunteers, and our when you encourage a child, you're putting a deposit into their account. You're, You're depositing encouragement, life into their account. And the hope is that when they get older, they may not be materially wealthy, but their words wealthy. They go, man, I remember so many things people said. People in my home, my parents, church people, kids, workers, teachers. I I remember just, they spoke life over me. Oh, that that would be us. That we'd be a a a church that speaks life into our children. I want to close with a challenge. um, Two things. I want to encourage you to do both, and I'm going to do the same first is this sometime this week or in the next two weeks coming weeks schedule two uninterrupted hours to offer the ministry of presence to someone it may be somebody that you haven't seen in a while somebody who's going through a hard patch it may be somebody who's battling physical health issues they can't leave their home whatever it is Uh, men it might be your wife you schedule two hours to date that's ministry of presence it's not about what but it's i'm going to be there but do that in the next couple of weeks, two hours of uninterrupted ministry of presence in the life of another person. And secondly is this, send one text or email each day with no other agenda than to encourage. I, I find that encouragement for me is something I'm pretty decent at doing as long as it's along the way. Like, hey, you're doing a great job. Now let's talk about what needs to get done. But the encouragement that just comes and you go, man, there's nothing of business in this text. William, you've done that for me and I've been blessed and encouraged by it. Many of you have done that for me. Just a simple text, simple email to say, hey, let's do that for one another. Each day this week, one text, one email to someone else in your life that can encourage them. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your encouragement. God, I thank you for the way that your spirit and your word nourish us. Um, God, we are all prone to discouragement because we live in a world that's tough. And we make mistakes and we fail. And God, sometimes we, we are harder on ourselves maybe than even other people are. And, and God, we just have these narratives in our mind. But God, I pray that through your word, through worship, through your presence and through the encouragement of each other, God, that we would live encouraged lives, healed lives. God, and we would be healers, encouraging others as we go. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.